Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Abdullah Muhammad, author of Africans in New Sweden. Abdullah Mohammed, author of Africans in New Sweden. What got you interested in New Sweden in the first place? Well, about nine years ago, I was invited to be uh, the reenactor for Anthony Swath, who was known as Black Anthony, because they had lost their reenactor. And I was invited to uh, take over that reenactor role and to be a part of the board for New Sweden Center. And I, I was invited by Herb Rambo. And um, the rest is history. <laughs> Did you know anything about New Sweden before that? Absolutely not, as a matter of fact. And it, it really uh, was the incentive and motivation for me to become a part of it because um, they, they piqued my curiosity by saying, uh, you'll be playing the role of Anthony, who was the uh, only uh, black person in the New Sweden colony. And I said, really? The only one? That's interesting. So I, I always took that as a, a, a part of um, what was the whole curiosity and mystique about Anthony. How did he end up being the only African in this, this colony that came from Sweden? So. Well, for people who don't know anything about New Sweden, where was it and when was it? Who were who Well, were that's a good question. Um, uh, New Sweden was basically along the Delaware River. It ran actually from the top of the Delaware Bay up into the Delaware River, up into New Jersey, part uh, southern part of Pennsylvania, and the uh, west coast of New Jersey and the east, eastern part of Delaware. Um, you know, during that time period, the, the basic transportation was by boat because waterways were the transportation route, so just about everybody lived along the waterways. So that uh, is, is why they were located around Atlanta River. They had forts. What time period? Well, we're talking 1638 is when Kalmar Nickel landed, and it came along with a sister ship, uh, Vogel Grip, um, and um, they brought soldiers to start the colony. And most of the soldiers were Dutch. <laughs> so they had Dutch and Sweden because uh, uh, the Swedes just really didn't have a very large navy. And the Dutch at the time had a very large navy. So they made this uh, uh, cooperation and, and they uh, cooperated with the Dutch in order to come over and start the colony in the New World. This is before William Penn? Way before William Penn. If you just want to know, William Penn came in 1680, and it was 1638. So did, did the Swedes have dreams of building a colonial empire and have colonies all over the place? Well, the Swedes had a desire to colonize because all of the great European powers 
were wanted to colonize. They first uh, uh, tried to start a, an Af African colony, uh, and they started the um, Swedish African Company, but that didn't go anywhere because they just didn't have the naval force to back it up. And the other thing is that they were in, I mean, really involved in a very serious war that, that became known as the Hundred Year War. I don't know if you were aware of that, but uh, that took a lot of energy away from whatever they could do as far as expansion, colonization, et cetera. But they had um, a group of in individuals that thought it was a very good idea if they tried to expand into the new world. And uh, they were able to uh, get some very good uh, ship pilots, uh, so ship captains that, that agreed to take this expedition. So the idea was to have a permanent colony that would grow? A permanent colony that would grow because unlike the, the Dutch, um, they weren't just looking to enterprise, meaning to just go there and make money and come back. The Dutch were purely entrepreneurs. I mean, they were like the first Wall Streeters. I mean, they all they were interested in was profit. That was their main incentive. So. That's why they had the West Indian Company, and they were just going around, just setting up pretty much you know, outposts to be able to uh, uh, draw from the land. They were into furs, and they were into whaling and, and uh, fishing and tobacco, anything that they could make money from. But, but number one, they were into privateering, and uh, that's just a uh, a. Um, uh, another term for uh, uh, pirating. Yeah. So yeah, what they did was see the the Spaniards and the Portuguese. They were the the real uh, explorers and uh, the first ones to come and 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 look for the riches and the wealth of the land over here. And so what the Dutch did was just wait for them to get it, and then they would just rob the ship. <laughs> but they got along pretty well with the Swedes. Uh, initially, yes. But that didn't hold. I mean, there was a constant back and forth. Believe it or not, the, the New Sweden area, uh, in, in just the territory along the Delaware River Valley, changed hands 10 times between the Dutch, the Swedes, and the English. So you could see there wasn't no real, you know, uh, mutual admiration society going on there. There was a lot of, uh, 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 I would say, uh, contra a controversy that went on between them. There was a lot of competition that went on with the, uh, between them, misunderstandings that... So there was a lot that was going on. It was a what kind of country was Sweden at the time? Sweden was a, a, a major power. Sweden uh, in, in also included Finland, and um, they were fighting this war because they wanted to become the major influence and take over Norway and Denmark. And they were going to be this, this, this Scandinavian superpower up there taking over the other land. So they were a very powerful country at the time. And um, this is one of the reasons why they felt like they were being uh, totally um, left out of the world stage, you know, by not colonizing anywhere. So if you were a colonist in New Sweden, what would life have been like? Well, the colonists didn't come until 15 months after the original soldiers, sailors, 
came to sort of develop that. It was all area. soldiers in the beginning? It was all soldiers, except for Anthony. Anthony um, was Anthony, right in the, the character that I yes the character that I uh, uh, portray for the uh, New Sweden uh, colony uh, he came in 1639 the first ships came in 1638 and just to tell you uh, this this whole uh, adventure uh, started with the uh, with Kalmar Nickel and Vogel Grip coming over and they landed the sailors and soldiers to start building the fort both ships left. Now, the Kalmar Nickel, Kalmar Nickel left to go back uh, to refuel and get more passengers and to come back. The uh, Vogel Grip was given the instruction to take their stock and trade and go to Virginia and trade for tobacco and go back to Sweden. Well, bringing, um, yeah, to go back to Sweden. Now, what the captain of the Vogel Grip found out is that there were a lot of Spanish galleons that were sort of sailing about what was known then as the Spanish Caribbean. And he wanted to plunder one of those ships. He was in, had a selfish motivation to sort of enrich himself while he was over this way. He figured, well, you know, let me try to get some of these uh, riches that the Spaniards are, are carrying on their ship. So he left, instead of going to Virginia, which is like right down the coast, he decided to go all the way over into the Caribbean. And he wasn't able to intercept the ship and ended up at St. Christopher's Island. And that is where he came upon Anthony, which is the interesting story behind my book, um, you know, Africans in New Sweden, because I was totally, when you asked me about what uh, sort of motivate me to become a part of New Sweden um, Center, um, it was motivated, as I said again, I could not understand how he was the only African. And then when I found out that they went to this island where he had, according to the records, nearly 40,000 Africans on this island, you pick one. Now, how exactly does that happen? How does a captain decide on one out of 40,000, you know, Africans that are enslaved on this island? It, it, it just bugged me. It, 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 it was really the impetus behind the book. So the New Sweden Center and the uh, Del Delaware um, um, uh, Heritage uh, Commission both asked me to, uh, to write a book, and they commissioned me to write the book. And so I had three periods that I went through in writing the book because, number one, I thought I could find enough information to write about Anthony. There's a mystery on how he got to St. Christopher Island, so that stumped me. No one knows how he got there. He wasn't from there. That was the one thing, because all of the slaves were brought there. Two, the period of time that the New Sweden colony existed, 1638 to 1655, just didn't seem to be a long enough period to really um, fill a book when all I knew about Anthony was his time on the estate for the royal, first royal governor, Prince. But prior to that, he worked with the soldiers and no one kept any log of what they did daily in building the fort, which was the main thing they did was to build this fort, uh, what they call Fort Christina. And after that, he, the royal governor, uh, Johann Prince, left in 1653. Anthony was still there in 1654, and all of a sudden, 
It's a blank page again. We don't know what happened to them. So the trail just goes dead. So now I'm looking at this and I'm saying, I know where he got him from. I know that he came here and he worked with the government. In fact, he was the, like the private captain of, um, he was like the chauffeur, if you want to call it, of the um, governor's sloop because they sailed the waterways. So he shadowed the governor everywhere because he was his transportation. And um, the other thing is that I needed to expand the period of time. So I could see whether or not I can gather some more information about free Africans because um, we know that Anthony was a free African because Sweden had already um, uh, uh, forbidden or uh, banned slavery in Sweden back in 1355. So they, uh, Anthony knew when that ship came into uh, port at St. Christopher, this had to be a different kind of ship from the others because it came in with no slaves and it left with no slaves. That's an interesting thing. I would think of this man, and he, he was, and proved to be very intelligent, and I'm sure that he picked up on that right away. And so he said, you know, I think, I, I think Anthony made the choice to go on that ship, not the captain. And I think because they didn't have all of their stock and trade to get the uh, tobacco they were supposed to get in Virginia, uh, uh, I mean, they were able to get their stock, that I don't know how to use their stock in trade to buy Anthony and also have it to get the tobacco they needed to get. When you were pouring over the records of New Sweden, how often did you come across Anthony's name? Well, twice. That's it. Uh, but the fact that he had a first and last name was something that was also an, um, an anomaly in that period because slaves just didn't have two names. Now, uh, what's uh, his last name? Swart. It's S-W-A-R-T, but it's pronounced Swart, like it's a T-H. Any idea where that name came from? Well, it's a Swedish name. In fact, you look in the telephone book in Sweden, there are a lot of Swarts. I mean, it's, it's, it's a very popular last family name. So, um, it also means black. And it's just like if you went to the telephone book and look up the last name black here and, or white or whatever color. But that's, that's how basically um, uh, that name came about, it's a, it's a family name. Um, but I wanted to, to, if I could, uh, I wanted to talk about the, uh, I talked about being um, directed to write the book. And I said I wanted to cover the period instead of from 1638 to 1655, which was the period that we know of the New Sweden colony existed, and to talk about Anthony. I wanted to talk about the period from 1626 to 1700 and sort of broaden that period and talk about free Africans because no other historian have focused on the life of any free Africans or just their position, their importance in the colony during that period of time. And there are several quotes that I have in my book from individuals, particularly government officials that came from England to set up colony that made the, uh, uh, or stated that they could not have a colony if it wasn't for having African labor. But that is also throwing you a little off because 
most of the Dutch, uh, when they were getting slaves from Angola, and this is why a lot of people thought that Anthony was from Angola, it was sort of a classifier. You know, if, if, if like for instance, all of the salmon that come in comes from, let's say, Nova Scotia, you automatically think when you see salmon, oh, that's Nova Scotia salmon, because that's where all of it comes from. Well, it's the same thing it was with the Africans at the time. All of the Africans were being brought from Angola. So they just referenced them as Angolans. And, you know, you see a slave, you just call them <laughs> Angolan. Um, so that was the, uh, the, the real rationale behind the period of time that I chose and the topics that I looked at. So the, the Dutch allowed slavery? No. The Dutch did not either? No. The Dutch, well, I, uh, let me take that back. The Dutch did not have slavery like the English had. The Dutch had slavery for the purpose of labor. But one interesting thing about the Dutch, the Dutch recruited very specific skilled Africans. Particularly, they got warrior Africans that they would, they positioned along their northern border, particularly when they're in New Amsterdam, because they were uh, being set upon by the Marauding uh, Iroquois Indians. And uh, the, the Iroquois were not a very friendly tribe of natives. And uh, believe it or not, they actually gave land to Africans so that they could set up a homestead and create a northern protective boundary for them because they were in the lower part of what we know now as Manhattan. And they were up in the, the upper portion, which is now like um, 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 the Bronx and what was that white um, uh, Westchester? And I'm trying to think of the other area. No, these four white plains. But anyway, they, they were up in that area. And believe it or not, the ancestors from those who set up the Africans that set up homesteads along that way became what is now known as Knob Hill in Harlem. That was, that's where all of the upper class African Americans uh, ended up because they, they had land from these way early Africans that came as protectors. But yes, the, uh, the Dutch uh, did not have their slavery conducted in the same way as the English. In other words, uh, I have a very interesting um, quote here I want to uh, read from you from the book in reference to how the Dutch uh, favored their um, Africans here. In fact, the, the Dutch were the ones that um, helped bring Africans over in order for them to, uh, as I say, protect them. And the Africans bought with them steel weapons or iron weapons. They actually gave to the Native Americans the tomahawk. These were the kind of weapons that the Africans brought with them when they were protecting uh, the Dutch uh, boundaries uh, in the uh, New Amsterdam area. But the Dutch allowed the um, Africans to intermarry. They allowed them to uh, be baptized. Uh, they were, they um, were manumitted after a certain period of time. In other words, there were a lot more freedoms given to Africans that were in, uh, working in the service uh, 
for the Dutch, and I got to keep my parameters, you know, thinking of Dutch, English, and Swedish, and, and uh, how they all go together there, because the, the main thing that the Dutch wanted was labor and protection, and, and they were able to give that, and most of them, the Africans came as indentures, not as, as slaves. It's particularly not slaves for life. Well, I want to ask you about that because you you say uh, you ask the question why you may ask should I address the matter of distinction between the service of forced labor, indentured servitude, and slavery? What's the difference between forced labor and slavery? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. I have a very specific uh, uh, area pointed out here, and uh, I can read from that on my on page nine in the book. It talks about forced labor, indentured servitude, and slavery, and said. And uh, I go on to say, because they're not the same in the manner in which each community deals with it. Now, when I talk about each community, there is a difference between um, forced servitude, forced labor. Forced labor is more in the European concept as something, you commit a crime, you're going to be sent to a debtor's jail, or you go to a debtor's court and you go to, to a prison because of on a debt, and you have to uh, labor. Now, that's forced labor because you committed a crime or you owe money to somebody or whatever. So you're forced to do something for a period of time. That's the forced labor. Now, servitude is uh, you can serve a person for a certain period of time because of an obligation. It may just be somebody says, look, I can't pay a debt, but I'll give you my servant for X number of years to satisfy my debt. And, but in every situation of forced labor, even in servitude, these are very finite periods of time that a person is serving. And they, and they know this. And it's not a matter of, of, of caste or their social status or their family uh, origin ties, et cetera. But in the English society, it was. See, you, we have and we talk about peasants and we talk about the serfs. But they were basically slaves. I mean, they were they were actually condoned to their class. I mean, they couldn't marry up. They couldn't, you know, they couldn't better themselves. But that was not the case of a person who had a, uh, a period of just uh, serving to labor for a period of time, or a person who was a servant for a period of time. They could still go outside and be just like everybody else. There, there was no uh, uh, mark placed on them that they were, uh, because of their status, doomed to be in this position for the rest of their life, the rest of their children's life, et cetera, et cetera. But now there were the thralls. Now the thralls were a group of people that were back during the time of the Viking. Now they had the, the you were you were born into a family. And if your family were slaves, you were a slave. That would, but that was an early part of the Scandinavian history. And they were pretty much slaves, just like slavery was in America after the 17, um, starting in the 18th century. And, um, but, but that was, that was, that was outlawed by, uh, by the king back in 13. So there, under your definition, there would have been nobody who was a slave in New Sweden? No, not in New Sweden. Um, see, every time you ask me a very definitive question like that, it's not always as easy as that to answer because there were some Dutch that bought 
manservants with them to the colony. But the, the colony did not condone slavery. Now, the royal governor, Prince, tried to uh, enslave the natives, but he had been given a set of instructions to follow by the, 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 the they call him the, the child king, uh, a queen rather, Queen Christina, um, to follow in order to uh, keep the uh, colony uh, safe and to make profit for the colony. So he was bound by these sets of instruction. One of them was to not to enslave the indigenous people. Not to enslave them. Not to enslave them. Yeah, that was a mandate given to him. He was uh, uh, mandated to uh, to get along with the indigenous people, to do everything to to work out, really have a, a good relationship with the indigenous people. So this was something that uh, he had to deviate from now and then. He tried because he was also given a mandate to grow tobacco. Now, do you know anything about tobacco? Not much. Can you grow it in that in that area? Along yes, the uh, you can, but it's difficult. Tobacco is an extremely, extremely laborious uh, crop to grow. It takes a lot of labor because it's a constant, it's like a spoiled child almost. It's like it takes constant attention from the time you put it in the ground to the time you take it out because even after you take it out, you have to tend to it. You have to dry it a certain way in order for it to come out right, in order to do whatever you want to do, process it for the different products that they made uh, from tobacco. Uh, and, and, and I'm going to tell you, uh, even though they were, and I'm saying they, I'm talking about the royal governor and the Swedes that were sent to New Sweden, um, mandated to grow tobacco because this was such a profitable uh, crop, it was not a product that either Sweden or the rest of Europe really wanted for the people. Uh, I have some interesting quotes here from um, one of the, one of the quotes that I have is is from the uh, period when um, uh, the Queen and talked about uh, tobacco in a way that we would probably talk about it today. Um, they disdain the thing. And yet it was profitable? Yeah, it's in my section that calls No Time for Tobacco. And uh, it starts out Sir Francis Drake and Sir Walter Raleigh. You heard of these guys? I think they had a cigarette. That was named that Raleigh cigarette. And But if they had known how he stood with tobacco, they would have not abused his name. But anyway, in one case in point was the ability of Sir Francis Drake and Sir Walter Raleigh to popularize tobacco also nicknamed the Jovial Weed by Francis Drake, among the English upper class in the late 16th century. Yet, in total opposition to that popularity, King James was one of the harshest critics of smoking tobacco. This is, this is King James in the English society. When I get to the other one a little later. Uh, here's the quote. Sounding like a modern-day physician, James anonymously published Counterblast to Tobacco, in which he describes smoking as a custom loathsome to the eye, hateful to the nose, harmful to the brain, dangerous to the lungs, and in the black stinking fumes thereof, nearest resembling the horrible stingent smoke of the pit that is bottomless. I mean, that is like 
real serious, strong <laughs> words. Yet uh, it was so profitable that the uh, ruling class wanted to, and the governing class wanted to turn their heads. But this was uh, something that came, as I say, from the Queen and the uh, Swedish government. It says, we, Christina, etc., make hereby known, whereas we see and understand that this our state and kingdom is by one and the other without order and judgment being flooded with tobacco, a merchandise which until some time ago has been unknown here and besides in itself is not very useful, but nevertheless is now bought and consumed by the common people to such an extent that it has become an abuse and in great measure brings great injury and poverty on many. And although it would not be unjust, if we as a careful government were to forbid altogether the importation into our kingdom of this said tobacco, and thereby in time prevent that the means of our faithful subjects further go out of the kingdom for such an unnecessary commodity to their final considerable injury and loss of property, yet because this general bad habit and great abuse are practiced by almost everybody and because at present we considered it injudicious to prohibit and abolish it entirely, therefore we have been moved to restrict it somewhat and adapt it to the circumstances of the times and the humor of the people. I'm so glad we invented periods at the end of sentences because they <laughs> certainly did not use periods. I mean, I had to read that almost in one breath because it was, it was like no periods. This is all one like long, very long sentence. Did they try to work other crops for cash? Do, or or was, there was no trapping or anything like that? Well, fur was a big commodity. There was in the Delaware Valley there? In the Delaware Valley, Delaware Valley and up through... Uh, uh, New England fur uh, was was the big deal, you know, um, and that's why we've lost a lot of the creatures that they they took the, the furs from. Pardon me. And um, uh, whaling was another uh, big industry that um, started up. There were plentiful whales on, that I was not aware of um, that lived along the and swam along the East Coast here, uh, here in North America. Uh, getting back to Anthony, now he worked for Governor Prince. He lived with him, lived in the... Thing. Yes, Governor, Gov uh, Governor Prince uh, brought Anthony into his uh, circle, as you will, as soon as he arrived. Now, here's the curious thing, but, you know, I, I need to back up because I, w I, I, I want to talk about the dedication of this book for it because I, the two individuals that I dedicated it to, I, and I need to just read this because I don't want to miss any part of how I try to narrow this focus of really talking about them being instrumental. Uh, and I, uh, it, it, I'll just go like this. It dedicate, I dedicated this book to two very important and instrumental people who are affiliated with New Sweden Center of today and whose ancestors were part of the New Sweden Center of 1640. They are Herb Rambo and Elisa Hogate. Uh, Herb Rambo was the president at the time when he asked me to be a part of the board, and Elisa Hogate is now our vice president and also the chair of our education committee. 
Um, but I made the dedication because it was not possible for me to begin my research without the leadership and foresight of Herbert Ripley Rambo, past president of the New Sweden Center and descendant of Peter Gunderson Rambo, and Elisa Hogate, current vice president and education director of the New Sweden Center and descendant of Anders Larsen Dalbo. Elisa Hogate's drive, fortitude, and tenacity have been vital to the publication of this book. I am and will continue to be internally grateful to her commitment to the publication of this book and the genuine support and concern she has shown throughout the writing and publishing of this book. This was not an easy project. There were a number of individuals who felt it was a lost cause because it just isn't that much information on Anthony. And her Rambo and Elisa both felt if someone made it their priority, their concern, to go and to research, they could find more information. And there was always this voice within the New Sweden Center to say, look, if no historian has found it in all these years, what, what makes you think you're going to find anything now? So my argument was because every day historians are finding new morsels of uh, documentations, information, uh, artifacts, et cetera, that help us understand well, what happened. I wanted to ask about that. Is it, is it that there might be records in the basement of some church in Sweden somewhere that hasn't been discovered yet, or has it all been discovered and there's just nothing it, written it's, down? It's not, I don't think, necessarily a point of it being discovered as much as it is a point of somebody delving into finding it. See. You could have a whole slew of books on your shelf. How many do you take off and read? But maybe someone else will come in and say, oh, and, and they want to read every last one of the books. That's the motivation. That's the drive. That's the kind of curiosity that develops this new information and that we thought was not there. And you found two references to Anthony? Oh, no, I found more than two references, but most of the places I look for getting information about Anthony was not where it was. Uh, they were more or less in like a ship log or a diary that was kept, uh, for instance, Lindstrom was a Swede that came over and he was writing uh, a lot about the, um, uh, the history of the, the land and the, the foliage and the, the natives, et cetera once he got here, and uh, he just, in passing, mentioned certain things. So this is where, when you have a topic that's not spoken or written about uh, very well uh, in history books, you're normally going to find those little morsels and tidbits of information sort of like off the cuff, someone just mentioning it as an incidental uh, situation as opposed to someone actually doing a in-depth uh, research and involvement with it. So how often would you go through a whole day or days where you would look and look and look and just come up with nothing? Um, it, it, it took a lot of days because you're constantly going through title. What you do, you, you get any book that's written about a certain, like say you have a book like uh, uh, there were many books that were written by historians here in Delaware that dealt with New Sweden. So you look at their bibliography and see where did they get their, their books from. 
Um, Thomas Scharf uh, uh, was a prolific author on Delaware history. He wrote volumes and volumes of Delaware history. I mean, he took like the, the smallest um, details of things and, and, and developed it by going and finding more uh, things to associate and draw into that particular um, understanding or, or just fleshing out that whole topic of, uh, of a certain event that others just sort of mentioned. But there was never any real fleshing out of Anthony. And, and it's really because, as I mentioned earlier, there were a lot of documents that were lost. There were a lot of documents that um, disappeared between invasions and this person coming and the Dutch coming on the Swedes, the Swedes coming on the Dutch and the English coming on the Dutch, et cetera, et cetera. So there were just documents lost. So the main thing you wanted was to be able to um, find some like uh, treasure trove of where the bulk of something uh, information was found. Ship logs were a vital and very important source. Are they hard to read? It depends on what you're looking for. Um, because ship logs do two things. They specify what's on the ship, what was the purpose of the uh, travel, where did they go, where did they come from, et cetera, uh, where did they stop, uh, what events occurred as they were going through their journey. Um, and you just need to know what part of the log to look at because they kept things in different section. Oh, just uh, since this is a, a book about Pennsylvania, uh, we should point <laughs> out that Governor Prince's house was in Tinicum Island, is exactly. that it? Which is where, for where people the don't airport know? Where basically the, is now. Philadelphia Airport yeah. along the river. And a little south of And it. that's where Anthony lived? Yes, yes. And the, the interesting thing, um, that the mystery that surrounds Anthony's uh, uh, arrival to St. Christopher Island is probably coupled with the fact that of the, the mystery of how he actually got here to New Sweden Colony. Because I said again, I am not buying the notion that this captain just went in and found this one slave and decided to purchase him. Because as I say again, there are several smoking guns that, uh, well, I would say there's not enough evidence to back his side of the story up. First of all, he never reported the fact that he had picked up Anthony. He went back to Sweden and never told anyone that he had picked up Anthony. It was really not until Governor Prince came to the new Sweden, the first royal governor, came and said, who's this guy? Where did he come from? And he got the story, and you don't find any logs that he wrote back to Sweden talking about, you know, I have this uh, uh, this uh, uh, seaman, uh, this African seaman that is really a talented person. I'm, I have him in my employ, you know. But you get back to the point that if you look at the scenario I'm pointing out, here's Anthony, a slave on this island. He's seen his ships with this flag, and these ships with, these, with this Swedish flag come in they have no Africans, they leave, they have no Africans, and he's thinking to himself, you know, I'm working down here at the dock and I'm seeing all these other ships that come in with Africans, they leave with Africans, but this ship, this ship doesn't. And then I'm sure he's going to inquire and he's going to find out something. And I think he was a stowaway. 
Uh, Cloud Atlas was a movie I watched some years ago. Um, you ever heard of the movie? Well, Cloud Atlas was a movie I watched that had uh, Halle Berry as one of the stars, Tom Hanks was one of the stars in it, and, and it covered an, an, uh, uh, like a, uh, a time period that went from the early past all the way up to the future. And, and it had all these different scenarios that it, it dealt with, storylines. And one of the storylines was this, this uh, uh, 19th century uh, sailing of this attorney that left San Francisco to go to this island to transact some business for his future father-in-law, and he had to bring back whatever he was to bring back. And while he was on this island, he came across this one African who was being whipped because he stole bread or something like that. And he felt like this was inhumane, this was horrible, and he stopped it. And it was that action that the, the uh, African noticed this man going out of his way to stop this whipping of him. So he wanted to know who is this guy. So uh, he found out, and what happened in the movie is he stowed away on the ship when they were leaving because, hey, this guy showed humanity and decency. I want to go wherever he's going because maybe that's the way they live where he lived. And I'm really thinking that's the same train of thought. I want to ask you about something else because you, this is, uh, your book is not just about Anthony, but Africans in New Sweden. And you write that uh, Swedish and Finnish settlers rarely turned over runaways to slave catchers, slave chasers. Slaves from Virginia and Maryland would travel to the land along the Schuylkill River to live among the Swedes, Finns, Quakers, and Mennonites for protection and later travel to Philadelphia where the largest population of free Africans lived. So, the, so first of all, there was interaction between the colonies and if there was a runaway slave who made it to New Sweden, they, they found help there? What, yeah, what uh, the Swedes, the Finns, and the Mennonites, basically the German um, settlers that came, uh, and the Quakers later on, after they start coming, uh, they basically would bring the uh, runaway into their household, and they would make them a part of their household, and they would share in the the, the chores and duties of, of the household, just like any other member, but they would not be a slave, um, and they would not turn them over. Now, because this was happening quite a bit prior to 1700, it was really from 1690 on that they started introducing these fugitive slave laws. And once they started introducing this uh, fugitive slave law, Believe it or not, the first area to have fugitive slave laws was in New England. And it was between Massachusetts and Connecticut and Rhode Island that had these fugitive slave laws. Because what was going on was slaves were few. And they mattered greatly because they were very skilled individuals and the households there were very dependent. Think for a minute. The Europeans that were basically coming to this new land were not farmers. They were not woodsmen, except for the Swedes and the Finns. They, they were, they were, that's why they got along with the natives so well. The rest of these folks came from cities. They didn't know nothing about living in the backwoods. So they really relied upon uh, the Africans that they had as slaves. So when you have a, a number of Africans coming from the, and, and this is from the early English colonies, see, the the Swedes and the Finns and the whole area here in the Delaware River Valley were sandwiched between slavery in the South and slavery in the North. So they were running away 
to this point. So the uh, landowners were thinking, you know, we're losing a very important part of our asset and we need to get it back. Just like if someone kept stealing your Mercedes that you kept buying, you know, <laughs> you're like, I'm not going to go buy another Mercedes. I want my Mercedes back. So you, you, you that's where the whole uh, design for law, because one, uh, uh, another household that had slave would keep the slave. You don't have to buy one. He's got the slave, he's going to keep the slave. If he's treat that slave a little uh, nicer, that slave would not want to leave and go back to this other master. So particularly those that were coming from the South, because the treatment of uh, Southern slaves was much more harsh than the treatment of slaves in the North. So that was the first reason for them wanting to have the fugitive slave laws, because you had slave owners that were pretty much kidnapping to a degree, not not necessarily kidnapping, but you know, if you you came on my land, I'm not I'm not going to take you back. But then you had those that had a deliberate purpose. They were like your first abolitionists. They did not believe in slavery and that no man should own another man. So therefore, they were not going to return these people. You're going to be a part of our household. And those that they couldn't make a part of their household, and when the slave chasers and slave runners and all were like uh, horning in on their, where they were being taken or what households they were in, they moved them along the Schuylkill River, west, more westerly into Pennsylvania. So if you were a runaway slave in before 1700 and you made it to New Sweden or was New Netherlands by then? Were the Dutch in control uh, by then? You probably wouldn't want to go to New Netherlands if you were a runaway oh, so, slave. So New Sweden, <laughs> well, how would you establish yourself? What sort of job would you have? What sort of life would you have? Well, first of all, this was, the Dutch had slaves that they bought as, there were two types of slaves, there, or, or I, I shouldn't use the table, slaves. There were two types of Africans. Um, and you had your skilled and unskilled Africans, and, and the Dutch wanted the skilled Africans, but they also wanted just Africans for labor, but as they labored, they became supervised. But when slavery became a real uh, uh, part of society, then you had two types. You had your seasoned slaves, and you had your domestic slaves, those that were just fresh, just bought, don't know anything about slavery. So you had a number of slaves that uh, knew to lay the land, and and they could speak the language, and so they were troublesome because they know their way around. But if you came to this new land from an area of the world completely different from this area, where are you going to run? You don't know nothing about running here or there. But it was those that had knowledge of the land that ran away, and they could speak the language. The other thing, you had white indentures and white slaves working alongside black slaves. And, and, and you had your black indentures working with your white indentures, and they were intermarrying as well. So this was what was going on prior to 1700. And so if a, a white indenture and a black indenture ran away together, they could even pretend, the white indigenous could pretend that they were the master and this was my slave. And, and they could really fool their way into a lot of places. They, they could get away. So that was the most important thing that was going on during, prior to 1700 when they started clamping down on runaways. But then all runaways weren't 
runaways for the purpose of going somewhere else and establishing itself. You had truants. Now, truants were uh, slaves that just ran away and hid for a period of time. And then they would come back because the master was angry about something or, you know, and, and they wanted to give him time to cool down. Uh, the, the probably the most famous group of truants were the female slaves because they were the ones sleeping with the master. And so the wife would actually help those females say to run away so they could, she could finally have some time <laughs> with her husband that she couldn't have when that slave was there. And she would even take provisions to her, the whole thing, just take it, because there were so many undiscovered areas and caves and bayous and swamp areas, and they can go hide out and never be discovered because they were not along the beaten path. Nobody would need, have a need to go in that area or whatever. So that's, that's where they went. And then you had another group called the Maroons. And on the Maroons, uh, I don't know if you watched the movie, uh, 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 it's an episode on uh, Stars, uh, Black Sails. Um, you ever heard of it? Anyway, it's talking about the whole pirate history. I, I'm a history person, so I was into the whole uh, pirate history of um, the uh, Bahamas. You know, the Bahamas were settled by pirates, and Nassau was like the main pirate holdup. And, and this is where you're, you had an island not far from the Bahamas that had a whole it was a whole island of Maroons. There were the slaves that ran away and they want to fight to free more slaves and they want to be free and independent. And they, they uh, actually started a uh, partnership with the pirates in order to take over uh, Nassau and the rest of the Bahama Islands. Before we run out, run out of time, I want to ask you, you mentioned, oh, the, we did? That new, close? We mentioned <laughs> the New Sweden Center who published this book. What is the New Sweden Center? Well, the New Sweden Center is a group that is set up for the purpose of teaching and um, furthering the history of the Swedish people in America. Um, we have, in fact, uh, I had brought a poster along with me because we have every year, we have an annual um, um, festival. It really was initially set up to mark the anniversary of the landing of the Swedes in Delaware. However, it has morphed into something much bigger, and because you had the Dutch, you had the Swedes, you had the Germans, you had the English, you had all these different nationalities as a part of what actually grew to a much bigger uh, uh, group uh, rather than the Swedish colony became the Swedish nation. And all these people were part of the Swedish nation, and so we celebrate that. Uh, every year in April, and, and, and we have uh, the Spring Fest, we now call it, that's coming up. And that's one of the things that the New Sweden Center is um, prominently um, set up to. Do they have a museum? We have a uh, museum that was, it used to be uh, located where the Kalmar Nickel uh, uh, ship is um, moored and the organization for Calmar Nickel is located on East 7th Street in Wilmington. Now we have a museum that's set up at the Junior Achievement Building in Wilmington, which is on South Walnut Street. And um, we, we have a, a whole collection that you can go by there anytime. I, I 
can't give you the exact address of the JA building, but we call it JA building, but it's a junior achievement building. And, and they're in partnership with a lot of the businesses in the area, and they have all these exhibits that are set up in their hall. And, and ours is one of those exhibits that are set up. Here. Are there any buildings or sites that people can go to and say, oh, this was New Sweden right here, that are still standing? Um, we have, of course, the Old Swedes Church, um, which is in Wilmington, which is not only uh, the oldest, uh, it is the oldest church that is still in use today. And that's the Old Sweet Church on uh, East 7th Street and Church Street. And there's one in Old Sweet Church you, in Philadelphia. Yeah, you have one in Philadelphia. And I went to one, I gave a lecture at the um, uh, King of Prussia Historical Society, and that's another host, Old Sweet Church. In fact, I took some pictures of it. it they, they have these beautifully stained glass windows, and it tells the history of the church in these stained glass windows. Really, very nice if you've ever been there. But um, uh, the New Sweden Center, as I say again, we're giving a uh, major program. Uh, we call it the four W's. It's uh, who, war, what, when. <laughs> and, and it is basically like a fashion show of um, historical uh, garments and other outfits that were worn by um, people back in, in time in New Sweden. Now, um, the, uh, the free uh, African population in New Sweden was, like you said, Sweden didn't allow slavery. But then as the colonies became states, Delaware became a slave state, Maryland was a slave state, Pennsylvania was a free state eventually. But you write here that uh, by the turn of the, seven, of the century, when it became 1700, one out of every 10 Philadelphians owned a slave, while one in 15 families in Pennsylvania, in Pennsylvania owned one or more slaves. So there were still slaves. It, it, do you know the interesting thing there, it was the Quakers bringing the slaves. Who later, who, who became, later were, became, yeah, yeah. became the most ardent abolitionists. But it were, they were the, and, and now they had slaves in their shops. They had them in their mills. They had them. In other words, one of the quickest way for colonies to grow here in America was getting free labor. And so they were just setting up Philadelphia, 1680, 1682, when they uh, added the three lower uh, counties, which became Delaware. They were all about setting up the colonies. So, you know, they were embracing this whole, this was the mindset at that period of time, that, that the way you can profit quickly was to not have to pay for labor. And so they had slaves. But Pennsylvania was one of the first areas to manumit the slaves, and that's why Philadelphia ended up with the largest number of free slaves in the whole area, because they um, had slaves that were brought to them by the Swedes and the Finns when they were trying to hide them because they were run away and they couldn't keep them in the house. Some of them couldn't afford to, to keep them because they just couldn't feed them because they were small farmers. They, they just did enough to take care of themselves and their family. So sometimes they would just take them out to Philadelphia and turn them over to a shopkeeper or to a mill uh, owner or something and say, you know, this is a talented person. And, and the way you know that a lot of the Africans during that time were very talented is, is when they ran away the description that the slave owners would, would put in the newspapers to advertise 
this, this runaway and how to describe them. That was a stark contrast to how they were advertising runaway in the late uh, 18th and early 19th century, where they were identifying by scars and missing limbs, different mutilations, because obviously this wasn't the first time this person either ran away or this was the reason they were running away, because they were being so abused. It, is the search for information on Anthony still going on, or have you oh, found everything? You, you oh, no, absolutely, absolutely. I am trying to organize a trip to go to um, um, Sweden in order to go to the university there to, to, to look through books. I have to do it where I can get a translator and someone who reads, because I don't. And so, <laughs> But I think there's a treasure trove there. I think there's also a treasure trove of information that's still in the um, New York City um, archive that were basically left by the Dutch. I think the Dutch has a lot of Swedish history in, in their documents and in their, their logs. And so those are two places I'm looking to go because I'm working on another book that I want to um, highlight. Uh, we'll actually talk about Anthony, but it's going to be part fiction and part nonfiction because I need to try to flesh out this character of Anthony. Well, we'll keep an eye out for that when it comes out. We've been speaking with Abdullah Muhammad. He is the author of this book, Africans in New Sweden, The Untold Story. Thank you very much. Oh, you're very welcome. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.